Hello and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley, and with my good friend Connor McNamara-Stratton, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and have a spare minute of your time, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. And you can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn, and Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry, and on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. We also have a website, closetalking.com, where you can find all the past episodes of the show, and Cardboard Box Productions has just launched a newsletter, Unboxed, and if you go to cardboardboxproductionsinc.com, you can subscribe for more behind-the-scenes stuff on Close Talking and all of the other literary and cultural history podcasts that Cardboard Box Productions makes. On with the show. Hello and welcome to this all-new episode of Close Talking. I am co-host Jack Roster-Munley. And I am co-host Connor McNamara-Stratton. And we are taking a, uh, a trip down memory lane as we look forward into the future because this episode is coming out on the fourth anniversary of the very first episode of Close Talking, and it is a mirror image of that episode because that episode was a literary reflection on a memorable election, and that is exactly what we are doing here. Ooh. We are ready to sit down and reflect on the pieces of art and literature and poetry that are giving us strength and that we are looking to for perspective and for insight and just generally uh, how we have been thinking through this election with poetry and art, because that's kind of what we do. And it's why we do this podcast, because that's a big part of how the two of us interact with the world. Here we are thinking about <laughs> some big stuff <laughs> together. And it's, of yeah. course, always better to not just be walking around thinking about it to yourself, but to talk it through with a friend. Um, so if anybody here listening is interested in doing that, find a friend and talk to them about it. Or also, let us know what pieces of art and culture and poetry and literature are you looking to in this, our hour of national, I don't know, celebration and need melded into one strange <laughs> morass. Uh, yeah, we, we would love to hear about it. You can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. And you can also find us all over social media. And uh, yeah, we're we're just gonna get right into it, Connor. What uh, have you been feeling? What are you thinking? What's up? Oh man, Jack, I can't believe it's been four years since we started this podcast. And uh, yeah, we we had we had planned one that was going to be our first one. That was the Yusuf Komenyaka poem, and then Trump won. And then we thought we should do a different thing. And now we are um, in a different place in some ways. <laughs> uh, but 
know, we're still in the, you know, we're recording this on Tuesday, November 10th, the day that uh, Pompeo uh, declared that it's going to be a seamless transition uh, to the next Trump uh, term, which I'm sure was a, a joke, as Pompeo is known for his, um, his gallows humor. Uh, you can tell it was a joke because he's such a noted stand-up comedian and everyone in the room was laughing really hard and also there was a two-drink minimum for the press conference. <laughs> That's how you know it was top-shelf humor and not just uh, a rancid perversion of democracy. He did this smile like after he said it that was like, I know what I said was like crazy, but it was like, it could easily have been, I know that I'm not joking and you're going to be like, what did this man just say? Or it could have been like, I'm a sick old man and I'm joking and you're going to be like, what did I just say? And it could go either way. Um, uh, I know I'm not joking, but as soon as you report this seriously, I'll claim I was joking and a lot of people will agree <laughs> with me yeah. and you'll look like real tunas. I try to avoid talking about this on the podcast because it's my it's my safe it's my safe space um but i'm quite a political junkie and i get really into the the polls and all that stuff and we're not going to do any analysis of that but even even if it was uh, an immediate decision that like biden won and trump conceded even if we're already in that unreality my like um, total focus on the race, it becomes like so, I, I, I don't know, I just, I, I, uh, it's obviously very important, but I like uh, charge the moment itself, the decision itself of like the results with like, then we're gonna enter a new world just cause I've like become so, um, like that's all I'm thinking about is like who's who's gonna win, what's what's it gonna look like, and then it's like the world doesn't, <laughs> the world doesn't change. On. The world spins on, and and then you add to that the fact that, well, yeah, Trump's not conceding. We didn't. We may not win the Senate. There's all these sorts of questions that make the future a lot more uncertain and potentially more stagnant, et cetera. And I, anyway, I get into this, this place where I, I kind of, um, it's like you have these like different levels of meaning in a way where like there's different meanings of like the word political, like there's like partisan politics and then there's like, um, you know, Democrat, Republican, da, da, da. Then there's like, politics in a kind of like explicit sense right like this is an activist like demanding some change in government and then there's like the kind of the sort of the personal is political or kind of thing where or like you know uh in a dumb way when like billy collins says like you know i think a poem about a flower is an anti-war poem because it's focusing on the flower and not war, um, which I think there's there's validity to that. But anyway, I, I get so 
and and it's it's interesting like listening like also in, in ter- to be like sort of um self-reflexive about it like podcasts like you know my my you know <laughs> like i have my literary podcasts you know i i listen to between the covers and the slowdown and um fiction on fiction all that stuff and then but like I also have my political podcasts, you know, and like, <laughs> like, but then I have, you know, there's like the Chris Hayes and the Ezra Klein, which are like kind of partisan politics, but like a little deeper in the, in the, the weeds, but also like, what does this mean? And then like, you go to like 538, which is just like partisan horse race. Um, and like, as I like look, if I had a, you know, um, a measurement of my ratio of, of <laughs> what level political podcast I'm listening to, it's like, it just goes, it's just like the, um, it just goes straight to <laughs> five, 538 leading up to the race. And then it just immediately drops off like it's some kind of um uh what's that freaking uh para- like parabola or some sine cosine some some shit like that uh where after it i'm like i can't touch any of that and then the the last podcast that i listened to was like david Naiman recently interviewed natalie diaz on between the covers and her new book is like post-colonial love poem and like post-colonial. And then she's talking about love and like the meanings of words and like, it's all very political. Um, But it's, you know, it's, it's so much broader uh, and deeper. And I just like, I don't know. I feel like every time I, try to tell myself that I need to stay on that level, but I, I always succumb. I feel that big time. Cause, and I think that's part of what I found particularly hard about this election cycle, because I also like to go hard into the numbers. I, during the 2016 election cycle, I was living with someone who is a math and stats expert, like professionally tutors people who are like graduate students and researchers in the use of statistical analysis programming. And so my like interest in that stuff combined with having someone around who was really, really good at it to the point of being able to run his own regression tables and to take the raw data from all these models and merge them and look at different projections. Like he and I got really into it and looked at all that stuff. And I still have a group chat a couple with my friend who does all that stuff. And so we talk about it and I'm interested in it, but it's not the important part of the election. It's important to a point to understand how people feel about stuff, but whether 90% of people say, yes, they think the affordable character is a good idea or 10% say they think it's a good idea. The fundamental question is, should everyone in the country have access to affordable health care? And that's the goal that needs to be worked towards. And I feel like during election cycles, as much as, you know, people always say, oh, I want to hear policy proposals from the candidates. And 
you know, this, that, and the other thing, so much of the coverage becomes about the horse race that some of those essential, I mean, all of those essential questions for the most part get lost. It becomes, is this popular? Can you market this idea to people? And I understand why it has to be that way uh, to a degree, because elections are about convincing people. You have to be the candidate that gets the most votes. But exactly as you were saying, that kind of deeper personal embodied politics, that was something that I really struggled with throughout this election cycle. And it's something that I've been reflecting on moving into this uncertain transition period, because those are the kinds of questions that I think are even more important to hold on to when you don't have the foil of opposition in power. Even with a Biden administration, even if it's a progressive Biden administration, there is still the need for action and activism around so many issues that I am personally, sort of exactly as you're saying, I'm seeking out those things that remind me, like that Natalie Diaz interview, but that refocus me towards that way of being political and that political mindset. No, I, that really resonates. Personally, obviously, I'm, you know, re relative to many people in this country and around the world, because obviously American foreign policy under Trump and Biden are going to be wildly different in who knows what way, because Trump's foreign policy was a real whack-a-mole. Um, but a lot of people are affected, and I am also affected, um, but I just, not to, I'm talking about my own emotional response, but, you know, recognizing that it's, it's not, I think, the response that needs to be centered, necessarily. Um, there's such a, the, the, the kind of the other, the result of when, when, you, when you get so in this partisan politic thing, or just like when you start thinking about that, is it, it narrows the realm of the possibility, right? It's like, it, it really like creates this tunnel vision. And then like, I just felt the day after like, so depressed <laughs> because it was the moment where like, and this actually leads into the, the one of the main poems that I've been thinking about a lot before the election, but like, especially during the election um, is it's like, it's like the moment when possibility seems like t in some ways totally foreclosed for me, where like I've, I've put everything in the election and then it like happens. And then I'm like, oh, it is Biden. The democratic leaders are shitting on progressives immediately for no reason. I had a lot of feelings and also just like, I had a very, I had, given myself a, a very narrow way at looking at what was possible given the situation. Yeah, this, this one poem that I've been coming back to, I, it's too, I think too long to read the whole thing, but I like, it's an Adrian Rich poem. I think we might've posted about it in, um, on our Instagram or something, but um, I, after, during the George Floyd uprising, Sarita and I were taking a walk, um, just like around our neighborhood. And we just happened upon this home that had an excerpt from this poem, the very end of it, just like, like a little sign, basically. Um, and it like really 
stuck with me, you know, that was in May or June or something. Um, and it still sticks with me. It, it's, it's something that I've been, like I, I've been reading the poem like before bed a lot um, and returning to it a lot, which I actually haven't, I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a rare thing for me to do, to have that relationship with a poem, I think. Um, I'll just read the last stanza, but the, the kind of, the poem is called um, Dreams Before Waking. And the, the kind of story of the poem is like the speaker is probably in like New York City or some kind of big city. And there's this kind of refrain of like despair falls and there's this construction of a building uh, that's like changing the view outside the speaker's apartment basically. And it's kind of gentrifying-ish is sort of the hidden thing, but it's like this kind of gradual change that's that's happening and you're kind of, I don't know, um, deciding not to move yet and all this stuff. But then like the last stanza basically says, what would it mean to live in a city whose people were changing each other's despair into hope? You yourself must change it. What would it feel like to know your country was changing? You yourself must change it. Though your life felt arduous, new, and unmapped and strange, what would it mean to stand on the first page of the end of despair? Wow. Which like has so much in it that I keep thinking about. Um, and it initially, you know, resonated with me because we were at the, I mean, there was the horror of George Floyd's murder um, there was also, you know, which we, we talked about, like, uh, when we talked about the, um, Janata Petrus poem, um, there was the kind of hope that emerged, the sense of possibility of the change that could happen with, um, police abolition and all that stuff, which is, uh, update, dear readers has not happened uh, yet. I think most people in the city or at least the Star Tribune writes about it like somehow the police department has been defunded. It has not been defunded. It was a, it was a, there was this, this imperative of you yourself must change it. I thought was very powerful in terms of like also just the visceral part of the uprising and like being in um, a part of the city that was not, not always safe and feeling sort of present in a larger situation in a way that I think I hadn't been. Um, but then, and having an idea of, a, of the city, uh, I guess I don't think I'd had as much. But like, also like people, what would it mean to live in a city whose people were changing each other's despair into hope? Like that just felt like, what the project was 
of of the abolition movement and still is um and then like but like then i i've been thinking about the end of the poem more especially in context of the election where it's like we'll see about the senate but like you know we've got till 2030 to cut carbon emissions in half or we'll get to 1.5 degrees celsius and then it's going to be a shit storm on a shit storm and you know there's no stimulus coming uh for the foreseeable future and just the direct wreckage of the pandemic and the economic wreckage of the pandemic is just multiplying and multiplying but this idea of to stand on the first page of the end of despair is so complicated of an image it's like you're on you're you're standing on it's like the book is not the book of despair the book is the end of despair right so by the time you get to the end of the book you've gotten to the end of despair right but you're at the beginning you're on the first page of that book which is like kind of actually how i sort of feel like at least like where we could be right now where it's like okay the last four years were the fucking book of despair <laughs> and like maybe we are, you know, beginning the end of despair. And there's another book that comes after that, which is like the book of joy <laughs> or the book of hope, or I mean, hopes throughout, but like, like the book of, you know, like not just not a negative, but actually a positive, right? Um, and in uh, the last waltz, the Martin Scorsese documentary about the band's last performance, where one of the mm. members of the band says, uh, "This is the beginning of the end of the end of the beginning." <laughs> and I feel like, I mean, that's sort of like standard, potentially meaningless rock and roll. Whatever. Um, he's not like trying to be profound. It's basically a joke. But like, I, I actually do think about that because it's so <laughs> convoluted. I think about it fairly often. And I've been thinking about it in relation to the election and it absolutely is resonating for me with a message like this. Cause essentially the message is like, well, you're in it. <laughs> right. And like, don't like, it can feel like it's the end. It can feel like something's coming to an end. It can feel like something is new is beginning, but what's really happening is like, you're in it and things will transition from one state of being to the next. But what's really happening is that you are in the middle of it. <laughs> yeah and like it's the beginning of the end of the end of the beginning like there's a <laughs> lot left to come and a lot has come before and right i i feel like that's such a yeah that's such an important reminder and the way it's stated in that poem is beautiful and you're absolutely right like the book of despair oh boy has it been <laughs> the book of despair and like don't recommend one star yeah well, <laughs> couldn't put it down, but uh, Jesus Christ, <laughs> horrible, the Trump horrible book. Was in many ways the Da Vinci Code of administrations. <laughs> One star, couldn't put it down, full of conspiracy theories, and uh, <laughs> read the whole. Oh thing my God! <laughs> yes, Jack's Goodreads for the Trump administration. 
Um, no, it's so true. And like, as actually AOC uh, said in that interview, um, it's like, well, we're not in a free fall towards hell, <laughs> but we're not like, you know, we're suspended <laughs> or we've, we've found our footing to climb back up or something, you know? Um, and yeah, I just, it kind of, and also just like, I don't know, though your life felt arduous, new and unmapped and strange. And there's so much more in the poem, the way that it, you know, for the whole poem and we'll link to it, but, um, what it, one thing that was so, there were just so, it was such a weird, partly because of the horrible anxiety of like, we kind of know the results, but they're not called. And then they've been called, but then they're not conceding. And just the anxiety of like, where, what is the state of things combined with the fraught nature of what the state of things represents was just like such a complicated emotional shitstorm that like I didn't know like for a while I just was like oscillating between like extreme states where I was just like huge rage super depressed very anxious hallelujah um but I don't know for so this this stands a kind of like it's held something of that feeling, at least for me, that I, I feel like I can kind of start to look ahead, even though I don't really know what I'm seeing yet. Um, I like that. I like that a lot. I have to admit, I went to bed on election night at about, I don't know, like 11.30 or 12 or something. And I basically was like, all right, this is fine. And it was just a question of when the counts would come in and how badly Trump was going to act. And what I have, what has caused me continual stress. And again, this kind of goes back to my like narrative fixation is like, this wasn't a particularly close election. Like Biden has over 5 million more votes than Trump. He will likely end up somewhere between five and 7 million votes ahead in the popular vote, a pretty substantial electoral college win through a broken system but like on no metrics was it a close election but it was covered and talked about in such a way that it felt a lot closer than it was which was very stressful even though i like wasn't particularly concerned it stressed me out <laughs> which was frustrating it feels to me a piece of what you're talking about which is like a slightly different version of it maybe we're like you know what's ahead but for some reason somebody keeps pouring fog in and that's a lot of what the last four years have sort of been like where it's like no we actually know what existence is we know what's actually happening and then somebody is just like dumping shit in um, <laughs> and the hopes that at some point that's going to clear up are like that's that feels like it's closer and more within touching distance than ever but couldn't even have that like even as it was going away i guess it's like not too too shocking but like even as it's headed out, it's worse than ever in some ways, uh, which is horrendously frustrating. Yeah, uh, I love the fog analogy. That seems really right. And 
I think for me, there when the moment when they called it, or like I knew I, they hadn't called it yet, but I kind of knew the case what would be called. It was like the fog had lifted, but then I like because of the fog, I was just like, oh, we got to get this fucking fog away, and then the fog lifted, and I was like, oh fuck, shit's bad still. Like we're in a fucking wasteland of climate change and coronavirus and i i felt <laughs> i felt incredibly <laughs> like i don't know it which you know it just it, it is what it is but it was it just was it, what it is it is what it is oh yeah yeah i will say i will say this this is my last thought and i i it's not a poetic thought but um well, in some ways, it's an it's about the about the imagination, which is, on the one hand, I think, partly because of the circumstances of the uprising and COVID, this past summer and few and several several months, um, I've really turned inward, thinking less about like the nation in some ways. And more about like oh my city my block my neighborhood um and i think that has been good and then i also am starting to think like you know i think you know something that natalie diaz has said you know like this land was here before you know the unit United States, the nation of the United States. And there were, there were people who are still here whose lineages go, go back farther than the nation of the United States. I want to start imagining, like, in some ways, I don't know what it would look like, but like beyond, not just like international, which I do, like, and I already think about a lot, but like, not just sort of like, the world per se, but also like beyond just the idea of the national, um, which I don't really know exactly what that means, but I, I, I feel very constrained. I feel that it, it's, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's an, in a, it's a very oppressive empire, this nation of ours. And I, I think that especially around election time, it's the idea of the country is so obviously overwhelming. Um, and like, I don't know, I, I think it's like important imaginative work to, to think, try to figure out what, how to think beyond that. Um, I completely agree. I, that is one of the things that I have been thinking about so much. And in fact, the nation state itself, as an imagined entity, if anyone's interested, Benedict Anderson, Imagined Communities, absolutely essential reading on how nation states came to exist as entities. Um, like it, it itself is a created and imagined community of people built on agreed upon mythologies of what it means to be part of that nation. And yeah, thinking beyond it is so important. Um, in fact, one of my 
most significant artistic responses to the election uh, by happenstance on election day as I was figuring out what the soundtrack to doing the dishes that morning was going to be. Uh, for whatever reason, <laughs> I thought, you know what, I'll listen to uh, just dive into those hits of recent yesteryear and get a little hips don't lie action going on. I'm on tonight, you know my hips don't lie, and I'm starting to feel it's right, all the attraction. <laughs> and this led me into like a little Shakira kick, and I love Shakira. Everybody, go back and watch her performance at the Super Bowl. It was incredible. Um, she played the drums. It was all I wanted was for her to play the drums, but she played the drums. Um, but my own uh, enjoyment of Shakira and her music aside, basically listening to her music on Election Day in the United States put me in mind of the the meme, you know, this is the future that liberals want. And like, Shakira <laughs> is the future that we should all be working for she speaks like seven languages she sings in many of them not just english she is a true international superstar she plays multiple instruments she runs a foundation that supports literacy like like if you're thinking about the future that liberals want think beyond the nation state think beyond the imaginative constraints uh of like well you can be a singer but you can't also be a dancer okay you can be a singer and a dancer but you can't also be an incredibly skilled musician all right you can be a singer dancer musician but you can't possibly also learn seven languages okay you can be a singer dancer multi-instrumentalist who speaks seven languages but you couldn't possibly also run an international charity that supports literacy like no actually shakira does all those things uh <laughs> Try and be a country <laughs> that strives to to be that varied in the way it imagines itself. That sees those uh, that sees as few constraints on its possibilities as Shakira clearly did early in her life when she was like figuring out how she was going to be in the world because she basically just looked at existence and said, "Yeah, I guess I'll be really good at all of it. Why not? I'll try that." <laughs> so. Uh, I have been listening to a lot of Shakira since election day and thinking about all of that. Um, you know what? Why not? This also led me to discover that kind of mind blowingly, the music video for hips don't lie has fewer views than the music video for her song for the 2014 world cup, which is like mind blowing to me. The lyrics to the 2014 world cup song, not good. The beat 100% bump in. Uh, let it be known, Close Talking, a poetry podcast where we, we read a poem, we talk about it, and then we read it again. That podcast, Close Talking, hereby endorses Shakira for the transnational leader of the world of existence, whatever that may be. UN Secretary General Shakira. There you go. Ah, thank you, Jack. I needed that. The other thing that I've been doing, this is this is my last piece on a more serious note. Um, I had similarly, I think a lot of my response to this election, kind of also echoing a lot of what you said, is is reflected through my engagement with the uprisings that came after George Floyd's murder in the summer of 
very specific action that this kind of came out of. Um, but during that period, I was watching just a bunch of different old, you know, clips of stuff, including James Baldwin on the Dick Cavett show. Uh, and there was one part of an interview of his that really stuck with me where he was talking about, uh, obviously, like race relations in the United States with Dick Cavett. And this is in the late 60s. And he says, this is new for you. It's not new for me. And that's in the 1960s. Well, I'm still alive. It's still breath in me. And so as long as breath is in me, I will never give up. But if you think that Rap Brown, you're referring to Rap really, and Stokely, are, are something new, you know, I refer you back to an old, old song. No one even knows who wrote it. And it's supposed to be spiritual. It's supposed to be about, you know, uh, Christian church, but it really is a slave revolt song. The man says, if I had my way, if I had my way, little children, great God, if I had my way, I'd tear this building down. It is not new for me. We've always felt that. It is new for you. And if, if we were white, our heroes would be your heroes, too. Nat Turner would be a hero for you instead of a threat. Malcolm X might still be alive. The discontent of white people, when they rise, they are heroes. Any white man in the world mm -hmm. says, give me liberty or give me death. The entire white world applauds. When a black man says exactly the same thing, word for word, he is judged a criminal and treated like one. And that is an orientation towards history and politics that I have really been pushing myself towards and remembering how much is not new because Trump's not new. This latest election's not new. It's a reiteration of something. It's kind of like political anaphora in some ways. To that point, something that I have particularly sought out is... Uh, old episodes of Firing Line, hosted by William F. Buckley, the like intellectual grandfather of conservatism. And it is a useful reminder that the conservative movement has been grounded in all of the same stuff. And people, Democrats have always been called socialists. William F. Buckley's first book was about leftist colleges and how they were like... Uh, anti-free thought institutions and indoctrinating kids and they didn't do what they needed to do uh, and then his second book was defending Joseph McCarthy like conservatism has always been really comfortable with a certain abuse of power with these same awful rhetorical moves and he is just pretty racist and he has an accent and affect that make him seem smart but really he's usually just being pedantic and like those are the roots of contemporary conservatism and much as it may have grown hasn't moved that far away from them and i have been holding on to and reflecting on that a lot because the contemporary conservative movement was born out of opposition to civil rights it's not going away and the contemporary iteration of it as i was saying like it's not new but I think in some ways we are at an inflection point where it is at its most dangerous and it has continually moved closer and closer and closer to being the the mainstream, the degree to which the farther right elements have continually been incorporated into uh, right-wing conservative politics. And so I have been putting myself back in time 
to remember how not new this is. And I find that both very distressing, obviously, that this could be going on for so long, but in some ways heartening. Yeah, I'll take your word for it. No, that that's that's all really right. Yeah, it's not new for me. It's new for you. That's that is a that's a that's a really important kernel. I just finished watching the Bourne Ultimatum, and nice. I realized that the Bourne movies and Jason Bourne is a metaphor for the white American subject in that incredibly violent without really knowing it has amnesia then is like wakes up and is like whoa what the fuck have I done and then goes on a quest to figure out <laughs> who they really are and what their history is and people around them are like yeah uh, it's new for you it's not new for me um i like that he doesn't know what his past is but he's capable of incredible violence it's essentially like <laughs> yeah. a very capable like the most capable violent child yeah. who knows nothing of the world except how to kill and that's, that's yeah America. that is america a young superpower do you have any any parting thoughts comments quotes <laughs> No. Uh, my only thought is um, the one, this is a total tangent, but poetry and politics Twitter has come together in a beautiful, very niche way during the election over the question of the inaugural poet. And um, there has been the legitimate call for Jericho Brown to be uh the inaugural poet there's no um, other choice close talking a poetry podcast throws its full support behind jericho brown yeah we do we do and we do make that endorsement um we are fine though if someone is able to exhume or raise seamus heaney from the dead as has been discussed on twitter by at least one state poet laureate uh and seamus heaney can deliver our great American Irish president, Joe Biden, a little poem, uh, I'd be fine with that. I will say, I think Jericho Brown for inaugural poet and then Joe Biden in his inaugural speech, more than likely to quote Seamus Heaney or read a Seamus Heaney poem. So I feel like that, like that's covered. Obviously, Will I Am hologram is on the table. <laughs> Seamus Heaney though, instead of Will I Am, but hologram. Yeah. Um, hologram Heaney, they call him. Um, <laughs> but as was widely circulated, I guess that is like we would be remiss if we didn't mention that like poetry is back in the White House, baby. Yes. Uh, Joe Biden loves Seamus, and in fact, as many people who are online probably saw, there was a, a widely circulated clip from Irish um, news which ended their broadcast the day that Biden was announced the president-elect with his reading of a Seamus Heaney poem, which is like. That did my heart some good. Human beings suffer. They torture one another. They get hurt 
and get hard. No poem or play or song can fully right the wrong inflicted and endured. History says, don't hope on this side of the grave. But then, once in a lifetime. That was like a big, just an emotional like, hey, it's a president who reads. So hope for a great sea change on the far side of revenge. Believe that a further shore is reachable from here. Believe in miracles and healing wells. Call miracles self-healing and utter self-revealing. Double take of feeling. Yes. Yes. No, it's true. In the same way that many scientists were uh, rejoicing that science would be uh, once again understood as a at least moderately legitimate field worth considering and not throwing by the wayside as it's been done. Um, yeah, language returns to hold some weight and be constructed in a, in a way that is um, not pretentiously elegant, but has a certain certain niceness to it. And I think that, yeah, I'm hopeful that words will matter again in politics and that we can use them as well as our bodies to make some, some good, good change. I agree. I will say, as Henry Drummond says in Inherit the Wind, the forces of fanaticism and ignorance are forever busy and need feeding. And it's up to all of us to not feed them and in fact, <laughs> to battle them back. And that, I think, is, uh, is the big fight that we're all about to, to enter into. And a big part of that is, exactly as you were saying, reclaiming language in the political arena as being something of meaning. Yes. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. This is co-host Jack Rossner Munley. Just reminding you that there are a ton of ways that you can get in touch with us, and we love to hear from you. You can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com, or the show and Connor and myself are all on Twitter. That's another great way to connect. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton, and the show is at Close Talking. You can also find us on Instagram at Close Talking Poetry or on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. See you next time. Thank you.